This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the director of Church Society, and this week's podcast comes to you from the Church of England Evangelical Council annual residential gathering, uh, a gathering of all the different tribes and clans from within the evangelical constituency in the Church of England to discuss issues of interest and importance to us all. Uh, Ros Clark, the Associate Director of Church Society, is a member of the Church of England Evangelical Council as a representative of EGS, the Evangelical Group on General Synod. And as our intrepid reporter, she has gone out and interviewed various people from the CEEC to bring us uh, an informative, edifying and fascinating podcast this week. So over to you, Roz. Okay, could you tell us uh, who you are, what your normal job is, and what your role is here on CEC? Yeah, thanks for us. Um, I'm Charlie Screen. I'm Rector of All Souls, Langham Place, and I'm on CEC as an elected rep from the Evangelical Group on General Synod. Perfect. I think that's actually what I am as well. We do have a church site place, <laughs> but that is Lee, um, and I'm here as a, also a representative of the General Synod. Um, group. So obviously, uh, we've had three days here at Highley as part of the C as the CEC conference, and quite an, a lot of that time has been spent discussing uh, the prayers of love and faith and where we're at and what we're going to do. Um, I just want to ask you first, Charlie. There was a meeting in London uh, immediately before this that we were both at. Could you just um, tell us what what that meeting was and what it was for? Yeah, thank you. So that. Um we, a series of groups have been invited to go to Lambeth and meet with uh, Helen Ann and Martin, the two bishops who are now uh, steering the, the PLF next steps. Um, I think, yeah, I was there as the Evangelical Group in General Synod. I think you were there as Church Society. I was society there as Church time. Society. Lee and I were asked which of us they'd like yeah. to send, and I got the short straw that time. And it was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, you and I have both been at a number of these meetings over the last few years, and this was a lot smaller, certainly, than any that I've been at before. There were the two of us, there was a representative of New Wine and a representative of HDB, and that was really it, apart from the, the sort of two... Um, general uh, church stuff. society staff yeah. exactly who were sort of note taking and that kind of thing so it was a much smaller meeting and it felt like there was a very different sort of tone to the meeting than we'd had previously and I think partly I would say that was as a result of the change of personnel Helen Ann and, and Martin I think led things in a different sort of way but also because of the change in terms of where the process is at I think they they feel very strongly and clearly that a direction of travel has been set. Um, do, do we think that is exactly as they might see it? Do, what, we had some discussion about that in the meeting, I think, didn't we, about actually what stage we are at and what really has changed in the, the process. I don't know if you can say something. Yeah, um, 
And one of the words they used was reset. Yes. So they're keen, they, they recognise that things have been difficult, that's helpful. They're keen now to reset positively. Yes. One of their questions was, tell us what's been wrong with the process so we can make it better. That was very welcome. Um, the, the problem, though, is that one of the things that's been wrong with the process is you can't ever get your hand around it and work out what's happening. So they've been saying, we're not changing the doctrine, we're not doing anything, we're not doing anything. And yet now, the basis of the reset is, now that there's a clear direction of travel and we've, we've sort of done it, let's have a reset while we work out how the next bit goes. And and There's a sort of trying to have their cake and eat it. Yeah. Very much there, isn't there? Exactly. The sort of, as we're trying to get it through, it's, this is really nothing. Yeah. And now that it's through, it's everything. Yeah. And, you know, we did, we did between us a, a certain amount of reminding them just how very tight the votes have been, that there's no guarantee of how any future vote mm-hmm. will go. But also that, you know, we, we still represent the the position of the Church of England. And, you know, given the assurances that that hasn't yet been changed, we need we don't need to be treated as the sort of weaker brother in this or the, the smaller partner in this, that actually we do still hold the ground that we've always held. And I don't know that that is always going to... Uh, be recognised in the way that we feel mm. it should. There was, I, a, yeah. Well, I, say, I think you can be appropriately sympathetic to those in charge of trying to run this. So, yes. I, Bishop Martin, I, I don't know very well. I've met him a few times, but Bishop Hellman, you and I have been with on the Five Guiding Principles group. Yes. And so far, I am impressed with her. I'd say she's fair-minded and helpful. She speaks her mind. She's not easily swayed, I think, yeah. by other people. Yeah. Um, but yeah. what they're trying to do is, is, and we've always said this, is totally impossible. So the, the, the other groups, the sort of more liberal groups, have been meeting mm. in the same kind of meetings over the few days, and their responses are beginning to emerge on Twitter, and they are predictably furious. Mm with a proposed reset and with delays. Um, and that's not a surprise, is it? Because yeah. so for, for years, well, the bishops are facing every parish in the country is being pushed towards a sort of demographic cliff um, that is, you know, COVID has made worse, the numbers are out, so they're struggling with that. They've been operating two churches within one church for for decades. You know, the sort of bishop is the focus of unity, which really means don't ask, don't tell on everything, not yeah. just sexuality, but don't tell us your theology, don't rub it in, just do your own. And, and now that won't work because they must make a decision on this and they, they cannot. Yeah. And they're totally caught. Um, and it does mean they're now willing to talk about settlement. That yes. was the other word they used. Um, yes, there was, um, I think Martin said, and I'm sure he's right about this, some bishops are willing to talk about structural settlement, some still very opposed to the idea of something structural, but I think a recognition that settlement of some kind is is under discussion. Um, so you mentioned sort of with delays, and I think, again, that's the thing that was very welcome to hear, that they do want to do things better, they do want to have a better process, and part of that is it will be much slower so um, we were given a sort of outline timetable that they're aiming for, nothing really substantive to vote on in February Synod. As a broad picture, 
in July and then hopefully something more detailed and, and final this time next year. That still seems quite optimistic Very. to me, yeah. but a lot less ridiculous than this time last year. It'll all be done by July. It, it's a recognition that actually the different stages and steps of what's involved around settlement, around pastoral mm. guidance, as well as prayer services or whatever, yeah. need to start coming much more in tandem yeah. with each other. But, and that was helpful. The reality still is that you look at the votes in Synod and there is no possible good outcome yeah. for anybody. So you, you, because the way it works is each time you just vote yes or no on what you want. So we voted last time for standalone services and experiments to then come by B2, which on the numbers will clearly get voted down. So we'll bring in the prayers and then take them away again. The votes on provision for those who cannot accept did not get 50% anywhere. So so actually, it, currently, we're going to go round and round and round circles. The, the, the timing thing that was clear was they would really like to get all this done before the general Senate elections. Yes, so that gives us... Uh, obviously, the rest of 2024, 2025, and 2026, probably. February and July, probably. Yeah. But it also, it's therefore very important to keep preparing for those general synod elections. Yes. Because if they get the impression that actually they'll have a much more compliant synod next time, why would they negotiate for yeah. settlement this time? Exactly. Delays can always be brought in if they think that would be a good thing to do. One thing that is an encouragement uh, that people uh, may not know is that the standalone services on that sort of experimental basis are not going to be commended any time now. We, well, well that, again, that's what we were told. Exactly. It could change. And, and we don't know because, you know, bishops do whatever they like, whenever they like, it seems. But... Um, uh, you know, I've no reason to doubt that they at least hold us that in good faith and and that, you know, we shouldn't necessarily expect, a, you know, that to happen before February or immediately after February or whatever. We think there's probably a breather on that, um, at least. And the, and the encouragement for being here is that e each year come here and, again, see the unity of a really wide group of people all saying, actually, if you do something like same-sex civil mm. married clergy, which is what um, is sort of on the top of the most wanted realistic list for those who want change, if you do that, that would be for all of us such a major crossing of the line that yeah. the consequences would be huge. And it it does seem like a number of bishops have now heard. believed, well, not just mm. heard, but believed us that that is true. Yes, so we're in new territory. Again, it, I don't know what that means they will do, but they do appear yeah. to have believed that now. So um, in our discussions, obviously, we've had lots and lots of time talking about all sorts of different issues around this and some sort of immediate things, some some longer term, you know, what what we really want, what we really need, how things go. What we, what should people sort of back in churches and DEFs and so on be expecting to get from, from CEC on this Um as an outcome from this meeting. Yeah, and I'm. if some of you would have been at the meetings that happened in the summer where the, there was a question about what, what should we do in the meantime, and I think I, I said then some words like, 
each parish is very different. We're all in very different situations. We, we should each do something now that costs us, that indicates we're serious, whatever that would be in your setting. Yeah. And, and in some situations, that, that would be you know, quite a small step, but it would be very costly in the context, given the range of people in the parish. And the thing I'm really great, CEC have set up these the, the Ephesian Fund thing for money and the alternative oversight thing for uh, sort of additional Episcopal support. And both of those are ways of indicating we are one of those parishes. Yes. And, and the more people on that list, the better. So um, that, that and our parish issued a statement um, almost immediately after Senate saying, thank you, CEC, and those are two good things, and we're going to be exploring both of them. Yes. And I think I would add to that, um, exactly, try and make sure your your parish is on that list of a parish that the bishop knows is taking action, whatever that looks like. But also try and maximise the impact of that and just help them draw the dots in some way that says, we're doing this as part of the Diocesan Evangelical Fellowship, or we're doing this yeah. in um, step with our brothers at churches representing the whole of the Alliance, for example, in your diocese, there may be a good number of society parishes that you can say, actually, they're part of the same thing. So find ways of you know, making that really clear to the diocese, to the bishop, hmm. you're not just an, an oddball off there to be ignored who's not paying their parish share for some reason. Or the other way around. So we... we had a meeting with someone who works in finance of the diocese, me and someone on my staff team, and they were being really very constructive. But it was an opportunity to say, we are not interested in a solution that works for a big church that you want to be nice to. We are only interested in solutions that would work for everybody in the London DEF. Exactly. Or everyone nationally. And and I think that is worth saying again and again and again. Exactly. And, you know, if you're in a, a bigger church, you know, in our diocese, a bigger church is about three or 400 people. It's not an all-souls language place. But nonetheless, if you're in that sort of church, if you're in a church that's a net contributor financially to the diocese, if you're in a church where, you know, you have people who are involved in diocesan committees, boards of finance, boards of education, all that sort of stuff, you know, you're a church that has a certain amount of influence and use that, therefore, on behalf of your brothers and sisters in churches that, that are much weaker and more vulnerable places where there's maybe a revitalization going on where not everybody on the PCC is evangelical, where the vicar might be feeling very isolated, be their support system as well. I think that's really helpful. Thank you so much, Charlie. Can I request for prayer? Mm. Um, we had a chat after leaving Lambeth, but the in one sense, where we've been over the last two years has been... Um, relatively simple uh we we have lost a lot of votes and yeah. we've been frustrated at the way we've been treated but actually we knew what we were doing yeah and yeah. that's right and it, it was obvious in some ways this what we'd like to happen oh no it hasn't this yeah. what we'd like to happen, oh, no, it hasn't if they are now serious about discussions about the future and settlement that is a much more complicated picture where the possibility to disagree about what the right thing to do is or just be wrong about what the right So please pray. Um, I think particularly John Dunnett, uh, who's mm. leading at CEC and also chair of the Evangelical Group and General Synod. Some of these decisions are really complicated and contested and pray for wisdom and help.
Yes, I agree. And I would add to, to that as well within the alliance, which is a, an even broader gathering, you know, pray for unity and wisdom in that group as well, that we can really can find a way of, of working towards a settlement that genuinely works for, for everyone in that. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Charlie. And obviously there will be more on this on the podcast to come. Thanks, Liz. May I bring to your attention a new book from Church Society called Reforming Church, written by George Crowder. The subtitle, How God is at Work in Revitalization Ministry. So this is a book written about this kind of ministry of revitalizing churches in the Church of England. It's written with insight, with humour and a depth of experience and gives the highs and lows of this kind of ministry as well as sage advice about bringing a church ministry to life. And also at the end of this book there's a chapter from Paul Darnington on evangelical ministry in non-evangelical parishes. So I commend this book to you. It's available on the Church Society website. Give it a look and even more, perhaps give it a read. Great. Could you tell us who you are, what you do in your normal job and why you're here at CEC? So I'm Kay Carter. My uh, role is UK National Director of Christianity Explored. Uh, Christianity Explored makes film-based evangelistic courses to help churches and Christians share their faith. And I'm here at CEC because I'm a council member. Great. Um, so at CEC, uh, people don't always necessarily know how the makeup is. There's a number of sort of founding member organisations. So Church Society is one of those. We always have a representative here. There are a number of people who are elected as representatives of the diocesan evangelical fellowships around the country. And then we always have a certain number of um, council members who we agree uh, different representative organisations, and that changes over the years. So Christianity Explored, I think, is a relatively new uh, one of those organisations, but it's a great one that we have because one of the work streams that uh, CEC is committed to is focused on evangelism. Um, so could you just give us some idea, Kate? I don't think you're actually on the work stream itself, but yeah. of, of what sort of work is going on around evangelism? Yeah, so I think one of the, the main things that CEC does is keep um, evangelism on the agenda. There's so much going on in the Church of England at the moment. So I think there's a, a sort of a quite high level role that CEC plays by insisting on talking about evangelism consistently and putting up the agenda and uh, having the work stream. But the, the I would say the con most concrete thing that uh, is happening at the moment is a series of what's been called evangelism consultations, which are just a sort of big gatherings of uh, Christians from and church leaders from around the country just to talk about evangelism. And I would say um, they, they've been incredibly helpful. And I think for me, the, the most helpful thing is they've not been afraid to ask big questions. What, what should evangelism look like in the next 10 years? What's working? What's not working? Where do we need new ideas? And so they've been very sort of open and um, collaborative. Uh, That's really exciting. And at those consultations, um, there are people from across the same sort of breadth of evangelicalism as we see here at CEC in general. So that would include, um, you know, people at a more charismatic uh, position, people, you know, with 
uh, not necessarily, I guess. My my association with Christianity Explored is it comes out of and is most used by a, a sort of conservative evangelical and inspection but but this is much wider than that yes yeah it's a it's a it's a broad group um you know folks there from really different strands of the church charismatic strands of the church um yeah just a, a kind of really a kind of capacious evangelical orthodox crowd um so which is great and we we tend to i think different wings of the church do do evangelism slightly differently and it's great to learn from each other so you mentioned there's been one of these consultations and some of those big questions were being asked about what's working what's not working what evangelism might look can you give us some um headlines from that about what what came out of that consultation yeah i think um I think that the one of the, the real pushes, one of the real threads, real threads that I've been noticing in this conversation and other conversation, mm. is it that uh, it's about the culture of the church. I think there is this real um, correlation between churches that have a warm, open culture, but also churches that look after each other. So actually, I mean, it, you know, it's biblical. You know, they will know you're Christians by your love for one another. And that's what we're seeing. I think that's what we're seeing on the grounds that um, churches that care for one another and create real warm communities that people can be invited into are the ones who are seeing growth by conversion. Is my um, is my observation. However, it's not just it's not just being warm and open. You do have to find really effective ways of speaking intentionally about the gospel. So it's that combination. It's it's being a, a friendly um, environment where people feel they can come in, but then when people do walk in, having a, a strong and personable strategy to be very intentional about talking to people about the gospel. Um, I, I always think when someone walks into a church, and actually we're hearing lots and lots of, of church leaders saying we're getting more people just walking in. But I think when someone walks into a church, perhaps not with a very clear idea about why they're there other than they're looking for something. The onus is on us to lead that conversation towards Christ. That onus is on us. And so it's that intentionality. Um, the other thing I would say, which I find really encouraging, is um, intergenerational church life is really important. I think, for you know, when I say I'm 50, I think when I was in my 20s, we weren't big on intergenerational. Um, we were you know, we weren't that interested, frankly, what old people were saying. I have, I really do not think that's the case with young people. I think young people have an openness and a curiosity about older people. So we had uh, a request for prayer the other day for a lady who's 80 and she is doing Christianity Explored with her godson who's at school. And that's not, that's not wholly unusual. There is this wonderful intergenerational. And I think young people are looking for that just generally in life. And church is one of the very, very few places they can find it. That, I mean, that is so interesting. And how delightful that story of the grandmother the, with her, her godson able to do that sort of thing. And one of the things that strikes me just listening to you say those things is, actually, that's so encouraging for smaller churches, mm. because often in smaller churches, inevitably things are intergenerational, because you haven't got enough people to sort of split up into age bands or whatever. Um, but also, it's easier to, to be and to to really clearly demonstrate that kind of loving, warm, family sort of atmosphere in a church where you all know each other than it is in a church that's just too big for everyone to know each other. Um, so if you're in a smaller church, I know many of our church society members are, you know, be really encouraged by that, I think, that you're in a great sort of environment for, for doing the sort of evangelism 
that that we're seeing working. Does that mean then that people shouldn't be considering the sort of older style evangelistic event, whether that's a sort of in-church event or a sort of big grand stadium kind of gathering? Is there any evidence that those things still uh, have a place? Yeah, I think there are. I, I I would be absolutely hesitant to say that something doesn't work because the Lord can use whatever he wants. And mm. church, you know, church um, leaders will have a sense of what works in their community. But I do think it's good for us to have more tools in our belt. Um, you know, my, my sense is that a lot of us learned evangelism at university and and have to and you know rightly have taken what we've learned you know into our kind of you know ongoing adult lives um, but those tools are honed for universities and we need to have more tools in our belt and sometimes they're the right ones to pull out um, and you know I'm involved with a passion for life and there has been some great events-based evangelism going on uh, connected with that but I think there's other stuff that works too and, it, and it's about I think you know, people, I think people take longer to come to faith. I think they come with a, a low level of understanding of what Christianity is all about. And you're likely to have to throw a few things at them before yes. they find one. That- so with your sort of Christianity Explored hat on then, are you finding that that sort of course-based approach, which gives people time to be building relationships and, and feeling that sort of warmth and community that you're discussing, um, is that really... Um, growing, having an impact, you're seeing that there's an appetite for more of those sorts of materials? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I think is happening is it is taking a little longer for people to understand what Christianity is and come to faith. And in that time, they, you know, often they will do lots of different things. Um, What we have found at the beginning of this year specifically is church leaders being surprised by the numbers who are showing up, positively surprised. Uh, they, you know, they've been saying we're doing a course, um, you know, they'll be expecting five or six and they will get 15 or 20 sometimes. And, and you know, it's not a it's not a, a huge flood across the country, but it's a consistent message. Um, we did some user surveys for, you know, who comes to Christianity Explore courses. And we said, if there's a scale of one to 10 and one is atheist and 10 is I want to become a Christian, people doing Christianity Explore are typically five, six, seven. That's where they come. So um, they they will need to have often, you know, they will need to have had input before. They will need to have input afterwards. But for many people, this is a really crucial just uh, step of understanding of doing a course. That's really helpful. I, lo- I love the idea of that that sort of scale of of thinking about where somebody is and actually how long it therefore takes if people are starting at one or two. Of course, it's going to take much longer before they can get to a nine, and then hopefully we pray a ten. But actually, we need different kinds of approaches at different stages along that. And this is why the consultation is so important, because we want to work collaboratively with people who help people one through five. Uh, We need to know what we're doing. We need to know what the other organisations are doing. We need to work collaboratively and say that our materials dovetail really well with theirs. Great. And if people were interested in becoming involved in the consultation or hearing a bit more detail about what's coming out of that, uh, could we put them, who would we put them in touch with? Uh, they'd need to contact CEC. Okay, fine. Well, I mean, do feel free uh, to get in touch with us at Church Site and we can probably direct you in the right place if you're not sure or contact CEC directly. Thank you so much, Kay. That's been such an encouragement to hear about a different area of work that not everyone realises CEC is involved with. Thank you.
In the current situation in the Church of England, it is increasingly important for churches to be able to clearly identify themselves as faithful to the Bible, faithful to historic Anglican teaching, and faithful on the pressing issues of today, including, of course, matters of gender and sexuality. We hope that identifying as a church society partner church will be an easy way for churches to make that public commitment and to know that they are part of a wider fellowship of churches around the country. Partner churches commit to praying for church society and making a financial donation towards our work. They will have access to a dedicated section of the website full of resources for churches to use and will be able to call on church society staff for advice and support. More information about becoming a partner church is available on our website and by contacting the office. We hope that you will join us in our work of contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. So could you tell us uh, who you are and what your normal job is and what your uh, role is here within CEC? So my name is Tim Buckley. I'm not sure it's a normal role, but my role is um, as vicar of two parishes in inner city Plymouth, technically called St Michael and St Barnabas with St Albans, Devonport. Gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't really have a role within CEC, um, but I've been invited as a guest because I'm part of the Privileged Class and Poverty Working Group. Great. So um, not everyone will perhaps realise that CEC has these sort of work streams and working groups on different areas. So much of what we hear is with respect to the prayers of love and faith. And, and I'm going to be talking to one or two other people about that on the podcast. But you're part of uh, this, tell me again, it's Privileged Poverty and Class. Privileged Class and Poverty, three right. very difficult things to define, but we all know sort of are real and exist. Um, and perhaps one way of introducing that is to say the Joseph Roundtree Foundation Report for 2024 has just landed It tells us that 6 million people live in deep poverty, which is 40% um, below the median income or less is their income. And 3.8 million people live in destitution. And clearly, as evangelicals, we need to work out what our response is going to be to such deep-seated need and what it means for the life of the local church in such areas. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, that you're in charge of of a couple of churches in Plymouth. Are those churches that are within this sort of demographic? Are you ministering to people at that level of um, poverty? It's very interesting when I talk to people about Plymouth. They imagine a nice sort of seaside coastal town. Mm. Plymouth is actually a large city of a quarter of a million. I would describe our area as a sort of place where people are dumped in the fact that there are loads of HMOs, loads of residential uh, homes for people. Who Just say HMO, that. not everyone will know what that is. Houses of multiple op- occupation. We are in the bottom, one of the parishes in the bottom 1% of deprivation in the Church of England. The other one is in the bottom 5% of deprivation. Right. Um, and our congregation is made up of a lot of people with a lot of needs in the areas of neurodivergency, mental health, learning difficulties. 
right? There's so many things that correlate with deprivation yeah. that, that exacerbate all of those problems. It's not as simple as saying, well, why don't people just get a job? Very often, whichever is cause or effect, that is just not the solution in, in those circumstances. I suppose the ultimate word that you would describe to a lot of people's life is brokenness. Right. And therefore, before you even start thinking about the mission of the church, you have to decide how you're going to make the church a safe place for people who do not know safety in other areas of their lives. Wow, that's a great way of looking at it. And um, I do want to ask you specifically about the work stream, but I wonder um, if you would just say a word or two about the opportunities and challenges that there are and, and what ways you've found of beginning to make your church feel like that sort of space. I'm going to say something that's always struck with me. I think it's Leslie Newbigin who said that the local congregation of the hermeneutic of the gospel, that's a posh way of saying that it is our life together as a church which can show the possibility of transformation through the love of Jesus Christ. I think as evangelicals, we're very good at preaching an individualistic uh, gospel, but in order for the good news to be good news, it has to then translate into belonging into a community and therefore helping to address patterns of behaviour which need addressing because they're short of what Jesus expects of us. Not that people necessarily realise that. Wow. Yeah, great. So um, just tell us what, have you been involved in the workstream for a year, longer than that? Yes. It's been uh, going on for a while, hasn't it's it? It's been going on really for about two years. I better explain what it isn't and what yeah, it is. It first of all isn't a theoretical analysis of the causes of poverty and an evaluation of the literature about it, nor is it looking at the tremendous work that many mission agencies are doing in this field. It is simply two practitioners working at the coalface sharing their experiences, trying to identify lessons for the wider church, and ultimately trying to work out what koinonia in the gospel might look like in terms of helping churches in such areas address the issues in front of them. Great. So can you just give us some pointers of the sort of things that you have been looking at within that or any of the outcomes or, uh, yeah. So... Jonathan in particular has used two models. So that's Jonathan Macy. Macy yeah, yeah. Has been using two particular models to help us think about the challenges that churches face. The first is something quite well known called Maslow's Pyramid, which talks about a hierarchy of need. And often we focus in our presentation of the gospel on meeting people's desire for self-esteem, meaning and all of that. But the bottom of the pyramid and the most basic need is for housing, shelter, food, food, all those kind of things. And unless we have some way of addressing those issues, it's therefore hard to gain a hearing for the gospel in other ways. The other thing that a model that Jonathan Macy uses is something called the Pareto Principle. I hadn't heard of it until he started introducing it, which is that those churches, those places, those individuals which have resources therefore have the resources to gain more resources and therefore have an upward spiral. But conversely, those who lack resources don't have the means to either sustain the resources they have or acquire more resources and therefore go on in a downward spiral. You can see that, for example, in people's interaction with the benefit system. If the benefit isn't enough to, for them to survive, 
Where will they get money from? What choices will they make about heating or eating? And so they descend in a downward spiral. Um, and we as churches, it's not that we change the gospel, it becomes a social gospel, but how can we present the gospel alongside helping people discover fullness of life in Christ? Wonderful. If people are listening to this and thinking, I'd really like to know more about that, or even maybe be involved or hear more about the work uh, that you and Jonathan have been doing and, and the results come out of that, is there a way that they can um, access any of that? Well, first of all, we've produced a report for the CEC council meeting that's been taking place here. Obviously, the next stage is to think about how to disseminate the report in a way that people can access. And obviously, I'll have a conversation with the comms team and talk about that. The other thing that's worth thinking about is involvement isn't simply a question of going to a place and doing to. It's about a long-term investment, building of relationships, standing with the people rather than standing over them. It's very easy to say, here's a problem. I need to go and address that problem. What you need to do is start by actually loving the people who are yeah. there for who they are and understanding their circumstances, which is one reason why I've stayed where I have been for 21 years. Yeah, long-term relationships. People at that level of society often are not, I mean, sometimes they're moving because they're compelled to, but often are, are very stable and need a long-term support, don't they? They're, they, yeah, their issues are not ones that are dealt with quickly, and they are people who value that long-term relationship. And I think therefore raises the question of models of ministry, because often church planting talks about five years, um, maybe having a sustainable community after mm -hmm. five years. That isn't going to happen in the most deprived areas, and it can take that level of time simply to build those relationships yeah. of trust, which enable a hearing for the gospel. Yeah. And one of the things that strikes me about this is how wonderful the parish system is in this, because it ensures that you've got a clergy person, that they're living in the area, and that they can stay in a long-term way. And vicarages are such that often there will be resources in a way to, to help with some of these needs, whether that's by welcoming people in for food or whatever it is that ensures there's a certain level of resources that are always directly spaced, but obviously much more needed, I guess. I suppose the word here is about being incarnational, isn't it? And it's actually having that presence. I think while the power system is great, I think we also need to be realistic and realise it is under pressure yeah. more than ever before. And so those who are heavily net receivers from the centre may find in the next few years their money runs out. There's always the threat yeah. of pastoral organisation. And it's very easy to reorganise in such a way that evangelical ministry gets marginalised in favour of a social gospel which purely addresses people's physical needs but doesn't actually touch the issue of sin and redemption. Yeah, really helpful reminder. Thank you so much. Uh, Tim, for the work that you've been doing on that and for just talking to us uh, about that. I think it is so great to hear that an organisation like the Church of England Evangelical Council is committing time and resources to thinking about those kinds of issues. So thank you. And I'm always open to having a one-to-one -one conversation if anyone wants to get in touch with me. Great. Well, if you do want to get in touch, contact us at Church Society and we can put you in touch with Tim, uh, of course. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.